Well, hey everyone. Welcome to episode 274 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. We're trying something new this week. I had an idea to allow a photographer to ask one of their photography heroes some questions as a co-host of the podcast. So this is our first attempt at that format. This episode features landscape photography legend and master Hans Strand, and I was joined by Eric Bennett, who engages Hans in a deep discussion about his work, his career, and so much more. I hope you enjoy. Before we get started, I wanted to make another plea for your support on Patreon. We're still a bit shy of our goal of reaching 250 supporters, and we've actually dipped a little bit to 183. So I really need your help now more than ever to reach our goal of 250. I put a lot of time into this podcast. In fact, I usually sacrifice all of my weekends to do it. If you value the content, can you help out? If so, please take a moment to go to patreon.com forward slash f-stop and listen, or find a link in the show notes. Thanks for all of your support. We can't do the show without it. Okay, let's get to the show. Welcome, Eric Bennett and Hans Strand to the to the podcast. I'm really excited uh, to have you both here today. First, I just wanted to thank you both for for coming back onto the show. And this is a format; it's something I've wanted to try for for quite a while now. And the idea I had was to give photographers the opportunity to ask questions of one of their favorite artists. And so, so here we are with Eric. Really wanted to have have you join us here, Hans and. And I think it's going to be a really fun chat. You know, before we before we dive in, I I just had a real quick question for Eric. You know, I'd love to hear how your relationship was kindled with Hans and and how it's helped you develop as a photographer. How did we uh, first become friends, Hans? Do you remember? You must have been on uh, Instagram, right? Yeah, probably a couple of years ago. Must be a couple of years ago. We're starting to to uh, how to say applaud each other. <laughs> I was mainly applauding you. Yeah, uh, I, I like your work a lot, Eric. You know that. Thanks, Hans. I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, I started following Hans obviously because of his amazing photography, and then I don't remember how we started chatting in the DMs, but uh, yeah, we kind of would just, I think, kind of responding to each other's stories and stuff, kind of uh, mm. sharing quick comments and things like that, and then yeah, a couple of years later. Uh, I consider Hans to be one of my friends, even though we haven't met in person still. It will come one day. Yeah, you got to come over here. Yeah, you, you take me to the magical brewery of yours. <laughs> Absolutely, there's quite <laughs> a few. <laughs> well, I want to be there for that. Yeah, shit. That's yeah, I can't leave Matt out for that. Yeah, I mean, I probably love beer more than Eric does, if that's possible. Well, awesome. Well, I, I feel like we kind of skipped a really important thing, which would just be his quick introductions. So do you want to just go first, Eric? And, you know, I think everyone listening probably knows who you are, but who knows? I'm uh, I'm kind of under the radar. I mean, Hans is just here so that people will actually listen to my interview, right? We just right. wanted him for the headline. Exactly. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm Eric Bennett. I live in Utah and I've been doing photography full time for almost 10 years now. Um, I'm married. I have three kids and I, I love nature photography because I love nature and photography is just the way that I try to share that love that I have for nature with others so that they'll care about it as well. 
So love it. That's kind of what is my main motivation with with doing everything that I do. Nice. And what about you, Hans? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm Hans Strand. I'm uh, almost 67, so I'm uh, an old warthog. Uh, I actually I didn't start photography that early. I was not at all born with a camera in my hand. Uh, it start, all started when I graduated from uh, Institute of Technology here in Stockholm. At the age of 25, we went to California, and there I bought my first camera and, and took my first uh, rolls of film. It was filmed those days uh, in Yosemite National Park, and uh, what, a, what a place to start photography. And before that, I had, hadn't even had a camera. So I was 25, bought my first camera in San Francisco, took my first pictures in Yosemite. So what other choice did I have? I had to become a landscape photographer, right? And I, I found the, it magical just looking through the viewfinder and putting four corners on, on the landscape in front of you. I think that magic is still there. I, I really enjoy that. Uh, and to um, walk around in the landscape and try to find my own uh, compositions, thats it still thrills me. I think it's really a fascinating thing to do. Um I've been, uh, this was in 1981 when I bought my first camera. So we're talking 41 years. Uh, but I didn't turn professional until 1990. Uh, I was working for nine, uh, nine years as an engineer. And uh, eventually I, I had had the guts to make the decisive move from being an engineer, well paid, to be a kind of lousy paid photographer. But I had, I, I improved my life significantly. So. It's it's a change I've never regretted. You know, I think um, the life being a nature photographer is just fantastic. Yeah, I love I love what you said there. That that choice was, you know, you're choosing quality of life over yeah. money. Yeah, you know, well, I've tried to keep my life uh, pretty simple. Uh, try to have as slow costs as possible. Uh, that allows me to have this freedom. Yeah, and it's amazing that you're still excited about putting four corners around different landscapes, like you said. What do you think it is specifically that has kept you from becoming jaded with photography after so many decades of practicing this full time? I, I think it's because it's a constant learning curve and it's uh, constant challenges. Uh, you can never really be fully learned, you know. Uh, it's um, It goes in steps, I think, uh, all of a sudden, you discover something new that inspires you. It could be a, a kind of a technical solution of, of a photographic problem, like focus stacking or whatever. You know, you started practicing new things. Or it could be a new way of seeing things and uh, new subjects. Uh, for me, uh, I've, you know, in the beginning of my career, the first, uh, I would say, 35 years, I've been photographing wild landscape, natural landscapes. But more recently, I've also discovered the landscapes created by man, you know, which I think it was, it became just inevitable to disregard from them because wherever I go, wherever I fly and I look down at Mother Earth from a, from a jet flying uh, to some beautiful nature, uh, uh, natural landscape somewhere in the world. And when I look down, I can see tracks of man wherever I fly almost. So we have actually become the most influential uh, force on on the surface of the earth. And that's why I find it interesting to photograph the, the footprints we are making uh, more so and more. Do you feel like it's a, like a necessary part of the story? Like it's not really fair to exclude yeah. that from nature photography just because it is so prominent? 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and it's quite interesting uh, also to see. Uh, uh, for me, it's been. Uh, I still shoot the same way as I do when I shoot. Uh, uh, we're talking uh, uh, mostly aerials now. Uh, uh, these man-made landscapes have been just aerial photographs by me, and uh, I compose the images the same way as I do with the Icelandic uh, landscapes that I've photographed a lot from the air, like the rivers and so on. I've been photographing uh, farmlands in Spain, etc., and uh, it's all about uh, kind of distribution of geometry over over the in in the viewfinder which uh, is the challenge and and to get uh, interesting patterns and stuff i i i i'm a pattern sucker really <clears throat> i really like patterns i'm curious hans with this aerial work that you're doing including more man-made or, or man man um influenced mm. um, landscapes do you have any specific goals for what you want that work to accomplish uh well i, I hope to be um uh, able to make a book in the end uh, about uh, man-made land uh, man-made landscapes uh, we'll see how that works uh it's i might not get along with it because it's it's too big a project almost uh, it will probably require me to travel all over the world to do this and i don't know how to finance that could be tricky but i i as a small step i I will try to make a book on on the spanish uh, farmlands because i think they are just sensational Uh, i was there uh, last week a week before uh shooting aerials and uh yeah it's just jaw-dropping when you see these landscapes from above it's it's look like uh like uh expressionistic paintings like uh uh, cubistic paintings or, or uh um like Picasso or Miru or uh, whatever. Has, has yeah. And do you do you say do it. you find it beautiful? Like in a strange way, like it's yeah. horrific, but it bizarre, bizarre. Uh, and how how the heck ha- have they been able to lay out such a, a an incredible uh, complex uh, display of, of farm fields integrated in nature? You know, between hills, and it looks like uh, like tentacles and like river systems but with earth it's just fabulous and uh also these enormous uh vast plantations of olive trees you know uh in in the south of spain in andalusia uh, when you fly over uh, some of the areas you can you can see from a helicopter you probably can see uh 80 miles somewhere uh, i mean you can see really far but Wherever you look in all directions, you just see olive trees. It's just amazing. I mean, we're talking zillions of trees, right? And I, I think that's uh, amazing landscapes uh, created by man, an enormous monoculture. There is not room for anything else than, than olive trees. So the biodiversity is wiped out completely, which is kind of scary. Or not just kind of scary, it is scary. It's terrible that right. we and allow the- ourselves to do that. When you're photographing stuff like that, what is your feeling? Because I have a hard time creating any kind of photograph that I like unless I'm excited. Like I need to feel excited about the thing that I'm photographing. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I don't feel inspired. But like with horrific stuff like that, what's kind of the feeling you have while you're creating those the, photographs? The inspiration is in, in, in the textures and in, in the layout of, of the landscape. So it's, it's not about creating beauty. It's about... Uh, trying to capture the complexity of this uh, uh, these type of landscapes uh, and for me it's uh, it's always uh, complexity that is more interesting than, than beauty 
and because I, it's like a challenge for you, like an exciting challenge. Yeah, uh, yeah, or uh, yeah, it's it is a, a challenge to to balance uh, these type of landscapes in, inside the viewfinder, and, and to 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 uh, to find a comp- composition that uh, makes it uh, interesting, you know, to discover the the kind of the backbone of, of uh, these kind of chaotic, because it's kind of really chaotic landscapes to start with. But like with nature, you, you can, at a certain position, you can start to kind of dissect it into a, a functional composition. And um, I think that's, that's the challenge. It's very, very, uh, how to say, uh, it's, an, it's an intellectual process. And uh, it, it is also a very quick you have to be very quick when you fly. You know, it's uh, it's like I used to describe it as uh, standing at the end of a conveyor belt, and you have uh, just tons of possibilities coming towards you, and all of a sudden you see something that looks more interesting than the rest, and then you have to make a quick decision how to compose, put the four corners, and and quite often when when I see that I that I succeed, it, it is like a bing feeling. You know, ding here it was. You know, here that was perfect composition then half a second later it's gone you know because you you go past it and it doesn't never come back again it's really tricky to get especially if you fly airplanes you 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 cannot get back to the same spot again twice you know it's it's one chance and then it's gone more or less are you are you still doing ground-based photography at all yeah i do yeah sure yeah so i'm, I'm curious how that aerial kind of the way you've trained your mind to respond and react to those conveyor belt scenes coming at you. Mm-hmm. How has that either helped or hindered your ground-based photography? Yeah. Cause that's kind of like a rushed environment to work in yeah. that you don't have when you're working on the ground as much. I, I, I can refer to an interview with uh, Henri Cartier-Besson. He said, painting is therapy and photography is like a boxing match. And I think uh, ground-based uh, landscape photography is like uh, a kind of meditative, uh, kind of slow process, and you get a kind of zen feeling. You get in in with the uh, landscape. Uh, you get in, in in the zone, sort of speak. When, when you're in the right zone, you start to make good photographs. Whereas uh, when you fly, it's it's so intense. So it's not really room for much of of uh, Zen thinking, you know. Uh, if you understand what I mean, uh, it's it's very very intense, and uh, you have to be a really slugger, you know. You you have to be very quick, aggressive, very aggressive, uh, because you have to kind of move the camera around and trying to find compositions. Uh, and uh, whereas when I work on the ground, I, it's much more. I, I just describe myself as a like a like a native Indian, you know, like walking in the forest looking for prey uh, for for a, what do you say for a game, you know, like hunting with my camera. Uh, that's what we do. Actually, we hunt with a camera. We hunt for compositions, and uh, on the ground, it, it's a kind of meditative feeling. I think. Hmm. Well, and uh, how long ago was your first flight? Do you still remember that? It was um, two thousand. Actually, I was flying a bit. Uh, I was joining a, 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 an Arctic expedition with a Swedish uh, polar research, and we uh, went through the Northwest Passage in northern Canada with an icebreaker. 
And um, during that expedition, I was able to fly a few times with a helicopter up there. And that kind of, I kind of got the bug when I did that because it, it was a new experience for me. And um, then uh, I started to fly in Iceland uh, 2000. Um, and after that, I've been flying uh, maybe 150 hours or so in Iceland and maybe uh, about 40, 50 hours in, in Spain. And so like those first Iceland flights, were you shooting digital by then or were you still using film yeah, cameras? It was uh, actually the first, no, the first was with film with a Hasselblad uh, two and a quarter by two and a quarter, uh, 120 film. And so and, how, how different was that experience than like, you know, when you went to Iceland a few weeks ago and you're shooting with digital equipment and everything like, yeah, I mean, how was that so much easier when you are shooting digital because you never expose uh, your, and it never make a wrong exposure. Never, ever. It's like uh, fishing with a huge, what do you call a trawler, you know, you, you have so much margin on, on the highlights and the shadows today. Modern cameras has about, would have 12, 14 stops of, of uh, latitude, whereas with film, it was five stops with Velvia. Five stops is nothing. So you had to have very low contrast uh, objects. Otherwise, the blacks would turn pitch black. Uh, the shadows would turn pitch black or the shadows burned out. So it was a bit tricky. You had to nail the exposure exactly on the stop. Whereas now it doesn't matter if you underexpose the stop, it doesn't matter. I, I, I well, have, and also, I have my I mean, I'm sure you also felt like limited by how many photos you could take, which would be yeah, frustrating sure. too. You had to change uh, film all, uh, all the time. You know, it took a lot of time to do that. Whereas now you have one memory card and you just shoot thousand images. Amazing. So that's that has become a lot uh, easier, and it is what, what we call the post-exposure anxiety it no longer exists because it was always a worry after uh, anxiety afterwards. Did I compensate for this and that? Maybe I should have opened up a half a stop because this was uh, too bright an object. You need to expose, overexpose the bright objects and underexpose dark objects, etc., to to get it right. And it was always always a problem so quite a lot of shots were the a lot of images were not didn't work out because you exposed them wrong in the old days especially the most uh, uh the worst thing was shooting sheet film you know with view cameras and uh, uh in the end i was shooting eight by ten and and you don't have more uh, accuracy with that uh than with with a 35 millimeter camera you the exposure is just as difficult with eight by ten, and you have to nail it. You know, if you're shooting uh, chromes, and uh, to nail it perfectly, uh, you, you had you had to make some bracketings up and down, and bracketing with eight by ten film that cost a bloody fortune. You know, and I would think almost impossible if you're aerial. <laughs> yeah, aerials is impossible. I never did that, but from the ground, yeah, it yeah. was um, it was a hassle. Sure. But now I think it's it's a lot easier. There was a Hasselblad. Yeah, Hasselblad. Yeah, it's a hassle. Sorry, it's a bad joke. Um, Hans, you're one of the few photographers alive today that I would refer to as a master. Um, I really feel like you deserve that title, and I know you're like a Hasselblad master. Um, but I just say that because of the consistent quality of your work, and you still continue to produce amazing work. But I'm just curious, like one of the things that drives me to always try to improve is a certain level of dissatisfaction with my own work. So mm -hmm. like for the most part, I'll like a lot of my images, but 
there will be certain ones that I really like. And there's something inside me that says like, why can't they all be at that level? And that's something that I strive for. And I try to improve little things constantly. And that's, that's what keeps me interested uh, in the medium of photography for the most part. To this day, do you still feel any kind of dissatisfaction with your work? Like, is there anything that bothers you about it or anything that you wish you could change or, or do you, did you like hit it uh, like 20 years ago and you've just kind of been coasting, you know, like you feel like you're at a quality that you're happy with? No, I'm perfectly happy with everything I do. (laughs) No, yeah, of course. It's, it's always actually, there is always uh, an element of this uh, satisfaction when you start to scrutinize uh, the images too much, you know, there is always imperfection, but I don't, I wonder Again, if perfection is perfect, um, uh, I th- I think there is a, a problem being too perfect many times. You know, I think. Well, yeah, last time uh, after our critique group finished, you and I chatted for like an yeah. hour afterwards, and you had mentioned that you had said that in your images you you want things to be right, but there you don't want it to be too perfect. Like you want to allow a certain amount of imperfection Mm. and that's kind of something that i've been focusing on too because i feel like images can feel contrived and unnatural if everything is too organized and too perfectly aligned Mm. so there's like that sweet spot where it it maintains the naturalness of the subject matter Mm. but um yeah i thought that was super interesting that you said that because i think a lot of photographers at least if they're just getting started they're always hoping that they can get everything perfect but what do you mean by that why is it important for you to have some imperfection I think it when it becomes too monumental, uh, monumental. I think it, it becoming kind of stiff. I think with kind of stale element of fred, what do you say, fragility. It's good to have that. Uh, for instance, uh, I've noticed many times when I've been photographing in in the forest, and I've been waiting for uh, the wind to drop, and the you know branches are waving back and forth, and you want everything to be sharp and by accident i've taken some pictures when it been uh, the the branches have been waving too much and and, and those are the images that have be, be, become the best i think when, when there is a kind of imperfection that i was not looking for there it was and it made the picture alive whereas when, when everything is you know i think when we're talking uh, like shooting rock it, uh, Shooting rock can be too stiff, I think, because it's it, it nothing moves and uh, it, it's very difficult to to get uh, rock images alive. Yeah, with like a sense of motion. Yeah, because it's. But you're able to do it. You always find like amazing lines and like you get these crazy perspectives that make it like your compositions always have a lot of movement that like really moves your eye through the scene in an effective yeah, way. That's what is difficult. I think I, I love shooting rock, but hell it's difficult to, to get it, uh, get some, some uh, energy in the images or w- whatever I can call it, you know, some like imperfection or movement or, or tension, or tension. It's, it's really difficult, but um, it happens now and then of course. Well, I mean, that's, I think you bring up a good point. I mean, nature isn't perfect. I mean, there's chaos and, you know, and I think a lot of times what we see with, especially in the last five to 10 years, photographers are trying to impose themselves and and over nature in terms of, you know, cloning things out and adding things in and like perfecting the composition. And I think their idea of perfection isn't really congruous with nature. Yeah. And and also there is an urge to, 
make pictures the way you want them wanted them to to look but they were the, they didn't look like that but you 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 try to improve the scene to uh, to something better than it really was and i i think that's uh, i think that's kind of stupid uh, approach it, it's a Han, lot of that Han said it not me it's once. a lot of that you know today yeah there's like a almost intangible quality that i really love about your work i was just looking through your limited portfolio on your website you need to get way more stuff on there hans there's like nothing on mm. there because i know you have a super extensive body of work but there's just like these three or four little portfolios of like yeah. 15 images each you got to update that man I, I, but uh i i you know before on my old website i had hundreds of images and somebody told me that you have too much work on your website you have to shrink it down so i follow that advice but uh, all of a sudden i, I stopped selling <laughs> stop selling images I, I sold a lot more images when i had a lot of images on my website so uh, you shouldn't i would be- just love to be able to see them all in the same place and because yeah. there's a lot of images you post on social media and then i want to go see it big on your website and it's yeah, not there yeah. or i've seen it in your books yeah i'll try to follow your advice there thanks well <laughs> it seems like you've done well for yourself following your own advice but um yeah there's like there's this intangible quality about your work that i really love and it's like an organicness in your compositions, I can always feel that they're well organized because there's nothing off or, um, I, I can tell I'm seeing what you want to show. And, you know, that happens very, uh, very fluidly, but yeah, it's like somehow you, you organize these really chaotic scenes in an effective way. And yet they still feel very natural and organic. It doesn't feel too aligned or anything like that. That's something that I really love about your work. Your, your composition is just, incredible and once you get past like rule of thirds and like uh all the basics of composition you start to appreciate compositions where you can feel the organization of the scene but you can't really notice it there's nothing obvious about it yeah Um, i really admire that about your work and that's something that i strive for i think uh it's important to compose the image in a way that it doesn't look too composed you know uh if you have too strong a line, uh, so the eye won't have any uh, chance to move around in the image, like like a fallen tree, for instance. Uh, a fallen tree making di- a diagonal in the image is is a hopeless uh, task because it's too strong an element that goes right through the uh, making a diagonal. I try to avoid that because then uh, the eye will have no freedom to discover that image. It has to follow that damn log all the time you know so um yeah it it has to be um alive and i think the secret for me is actually trying to get good corners with good corners i mean short diagonals sticking in from the corners just a little short diagonal going out in almost every corner it's a really good help to to organize a chaos uh if you have like a shrubs or whatever that completely uh chaotic but if you have short diagonals, it's like a spider's web. Uh, this chaos will be hung up, hang up uh, it, it, by these short uh, diagonals. And it's a really good way of, of organizing chaos. Um, I try to, uh, and the same, I try to do the same when I shoot aerials, when I shoot these river systems and so on. I very much concentrate on the corners to get them right. You know, if, if they are, if they are right, the image will work. 
That's so interesting because usually I think a lot of us are trained to try to avoid diagonal lines leading out the edge of the frame because we're told that that makes the viewer's eye leave the frame, whereas what you're saying is that it can help pull you back in. Yeah, I think so. I think the opposite. But they, they you should have short diagonals. That's what I'm saying. It, it, right. it, if they're too yeah, long... that can it, alter the direction that it moves you in. Yeah, it kind of stabilizes the image. Um, I, I think that that is good. But um, uh, on the other hand, it's a lot of theories behind composition. You know, you, you're talking about rule of thirds and um, you should not put an object in the center, etc., etc. But um, I, I rec- actually never think in these term- terms. Uh, for me, it's a kind of a backbone reaction. And I quite often can place the main object in the dead center because it gives the image more attitude. Sometimes it could be really good, whereas it's too obvious when you put it in the rule of thirds. It's it's just like, uh, yeah, you're too polite, kind of. I love, that word, like, I love that word obvious. Um, yeah. Because what I find with, you know, a lot of newer photographers who like list off all the people that they admire and you go look at those images, it's like, yeah, they're, they're good images, but they're obvious. Like it's, Mm. you know, it's something, if you were to practice photography for two or three years, you could make those types of images fairly consistently and Mm. easily because it's just obvious and it's in your face. Whereas I think what Eric's describing with your work is, it's something we can strive for because it's not obvious, but it also works. And I think mm. I've been trying to find more scenes like that as well, because I think that's how we can differentiate ourselves as well as with less mm. obvious compositions. Yeah. yeah having we, stuff off balance intentionally. You can uh, or... kind of dissect the image directly and see, notice the, the idea of the composition. It then it's kind of too simple. It's, it's not intellectual enough. I think you should have, you should need to spend some time analyzing an image and then, aha, this is how he was thinking. That is more interesting, I think. Yeah, whereas of course, you to spend more time with it. Whereas if you have that tree perfectly positioned in, in the rule of thirds or whatever, it's it's uh, it's just according to the book and it's kind of boring. So, And I know you're very spontaneous, Hans. Like you don't plan shots out or anything like that. You just go out and kind of whatever catches your eye, you you tend to photograph it. But when you find something that catches your eye, do you spend a lot of time, would you say, like really refining and dialing in the composition? A lot. You do? Or is it like more instinctual and quick and you move on? It it becomes, you know, I see something that catches my interest and then, then I start to shoot and I see, ah, I should move the tripod another four inches to the right. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Maybe, maybe a little bit more to the front. Okay, good. Uh, uh, so it becomes like a process. And in the end, I have uh, spent maybe uh, fifteen minutes or maybe uh, even more uh, refining the composition. So at first, it becomes like a sighting shot, and uh, in the end, it will be the real thing. That's how it works. So I, I feel like I tend to do the same thing when I find something. I'll spend time with it to see mm-hmm. what other compositions I can come up with and see if there's anything better than my initial reaction. But I feel like a lot of the time in the end, my initial reaction, those photos, those first compositions are usually the best because as I refine it and I get rid of every little imperfection and distraction that I notice, 
it becomes too sterile by the end. And then it's like, well, now there's like nothing interesting here because like nothing is, there's no tension. There, there's nothing slightly off that makes you ask questions or anything. And so I feel like a lot of the time, you know, that first initial reaction is actually the best composition than when I try to articulate it or think about it and mm. dial it in more and more. So I was curious to hear what. I, it depends, you know, uh, what was this song? Uh, American, uh, singer who sings about your perfect imperfections what was his name uh i think was, i think he describes it very well your perfect imperfections so, uh, uh, if you strive to make a perfect imperfection it will not become stiff so if you understand what i mean not trying to make it uh too sterile too uh too clean you you, you need to have some kind of uh how to say dirtiness in the images to to communicate some kind of weakness or disturbance um uh, yeah i i think it depends where you're striving you know if if it improves or or if you make the picture less interesting i don't know so is, is that it, why you love to photograph in like even soft light so much because it yeah, is so yeah, uh, constant time. and you have time to compose yeah, yeah i don't like the stress of shooting a sunrise for instance that and, and i think actually that beautiful light may be distracting from from the subject you know sometimes uh, i i know there's a lot of talk about the importance of light of course it's important but sometimes this uh, hallelujah light as i used to call it is kind of uh, kind of deflecting from the subject kind of it's it's a it's an unnecessary element of beauty in the image yeah uh, where where the light becomes a distraction because yeah. you focus more on the light than yeah. what it's illuminating and uh, i mean not very often the light is the subject, and uh, if the light is not the subject, I, I, I rather go with um, overcast conditions than than with uh, early morning, late evening sunlight. Well, and even like when it's overcast or it's soft light, like there is still light there. It's just mm. not super obvious or um, pronounced light. You know, it's mm. more subtle. So you're still working with light. It's just the different yeah, quality. Sure. Like that's I mean, something I tried to stress kind of- in my new video different kind of ideal yeah there's always light present it's just of course of course a softer quality and yeah i feel the same way a lot of the time with intimate scenes or where you really want to show off certain details pronounced complex lighting can just add like another pattern on top of the scene mm-hmm. with light and shadow that just makes it more messy and you can't appreciate the the subject matter as much i mean there there's always situation where when this kind of enhancing light is is uh, welcomed and uh but uh, for me, most of the time, I'm, I'm happy with overcast, and uh, therefore, I'm I'm no longer an early morning photographer. It, I can shoot some sunset sometimes, that kind of light. But I rather I very seldom up in the morning shooting. But I like the mist, you know, that you can get in the mornings. That's that's to die for. I think the mist is the is a blessing for photographers. I really like mist. So that's that's something I really look look forward to have something it, it's not very often we have mist here in stockholm where i live but and uh, when i go traveling I, I i don't i'm not lucky to have mist in iceland i would never have mist and I, I don't think it really works in an open landscape either because it just everything just fades out but in a forest it's, it's fantastic oh yeah it's like dream conditions <laughs> yeah and also it is has this reductive uh uh, reducing effect you know photography is uh, a photograph is too it has too many details sometimes uh, 
unnecessary many details and when you have missed you kind of reduce the the uh, how to say number of yeah number of details in the image and make it easier to yeah to like you know where if it's too messy it's like shooting a macro you you want to have a blurry background and i think it's equivalent uh, with a to a blurry background to have this missed condition yeah reduce the details yeah. that could distract from the, hmm. the first plane um so you just went to iceland again a couple of weeks ago right you were telling no, me you were in, heading over I there i was in spain then i was in spain i'm going to iceland uh, a week from now oh, okay so spain and then you're yeah, going to iceland spain and france uh, this is like what your 50th trip to iceland probably uh i think it will be the 38th now yeah what what where did your fascination with iceland begin how did that all happen and what is it that keeps you going back actually the first uh time i went there was 95 and at that time nobody was i wouldn't say nobody but very few went to iceland but i i saw some images by a swedish photographer he used to go there because he had problem with the pollen during the summer so he went to iceland where it was less pollen so uh, so I, I went there because I was intrigued by the landscapes and uh, it, because it's kind of bizarre, you know, beautiful in one way, but it's also very bizarre. There's a lot of bizarre colors, bizarre patterns and uh, very, very different from the landscape I have here in Sweden, you know, the wooden landscape, which doesn't... Yeah, it's like a Dr. Seuss country. Yeah, it, it's... Uh, and... Um, at that time, you know, 95, 95, nobody was going there, as I said. But now it's become a haven for photographers and everyone is go, everybody's going there. So it's not unique anymore. But I think what you have to, what I try to avoid is to shoot the iconic locations. I, I, I leave them. I don't shoot them at all. Whereas the most of photographer go there, photographers go there and shoot the iconic waterfalls. They shoot uh, this uh, mountain Kirkefett up there in 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 on Snæfellsnes, I I would never go there because uh, I I don't like the idea of standing next to three hundred other photographers making the same shot. You know, I think it's just stupid. It's like shooting the tunnel view in Yosemite. Why why shooting the tunnel view? It was done perfect by Ansel in nineteen forty one with this clearing winter storm. Why trying to make something less good? <laughs> so I don't think it's uh, it's just. That shot, that shot is made, and what you should do is find your own tunnel view. And I try to do that in Iceland. And there are tons of landscapes that are not shot yet, you know. And it's the same with the southwest in the United States. You have so much to shoot there. If you just skip the uh, delicate arch or whatever, I, I was <laughs> so disappointed. You know, my I, I did a trip to America in 1990. And of course, I was inspired by David Munch and other great landscape photographers. And I did the mistake of kind of putting my tripod in their tripod holes. And it never gave me any satisfaction. It was very obvious to me when I came to Delicate Arch, was hiking up the slope, and there was 50 photographers standing there waiting for the sunset. And it was kind of door opening for me. Uh, I realized this is not the right way of, of making photos. So I... I, I I went down. I never shot that sunset. I, I I thought it was just too much seeing fifty photographers up there. So I went down again. I never shot. And from from then on, I, I don't think I've I've never shot uh, images that I've seen uh, shot uh, compositions that I've seen made by other photographers. I try to avoid that. It can happen by accident, but uh, 
Not by planning. Well, you simultaneously just pissed off half our audience and yeah, excited so. the other half. The other half are like, yes, that's me too. Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, I, you know, I've, I've done both. Um, and even recently I've done both and there's pros and cons, you know, I think to your point, I find much, much more satisfaction in trying to unlock a puzzle that I've never encountered before, but it's also can be fun to experience what other people have experienced before too. So I understand why people do that, but I think, you know, if that's not something that you get satisfaction from, maybe try something else. Yeah. Yeah, And I can relate with like wanting to see something for yourself. And I think that's a perfectly normal desire to have, but that usually doesn't mean I want to make a photograph of it as well. That's something separate. So like sometimes I go places just to see them Mm. go to the, you know, kind of like sightseeing, kind of like photography sightseeing where you see these like iconic locations where these masters from 30, 40 years ago made these amazing photographs that you really admire. It's cool to see it with your own eyes. Mm. But then I, you know, I always want to, not just for the sake of creating a unique photo, it's just I enjoy photographing things that feel novel to me Mm. that I haven't seen done before yeah i agree so who were some of the photographers that inspired you hans when you were getting started oh definitely david munch uh, more than ansel adams actually because i i sometimes found ansel's uh, images like uh, kind of postcards uh kind of standing with his camera on top of his car shooting the whole whole shebang you know too much of a of a uh I, i thought it was I thought it was a bit boring sometimes, but um, David Munch uh, kind of was a door opener with his way of composing with the huge foregrounds and so on, good depth of field. and uh, So he, he meant a lot to me in the beginning. And then I discovered Elliot Porter and uh, got another kick, you know, with the intimate landscapes. And he was even greater inspirer, I think, in the end. Um, and uh, I think those were the ones in the beginning uh, – we didn't have any really iconic uh, photographers to uh, here in Sweden these days. Uh, in the old days, uh, most of the attention was towards the the West and America. Today, with social media, you can uh, you can find photographer where all over the world that inspires you. Fantastic and uh, unknown photographers that are really good. And um, yeah, I, I think you you can get enormous amount of inf- inf- as a inspiration by looking at uh, other photographers, how they have solved, uh, a, say, a composition a situation uh, in a smart way. or a, And you can apply that in, in your own neighborhood, in your own landscape, that way of making shots, but with a totally different kind of uh, um, type of nature. I think that's, that's very interesting to kind of transfer, uh, transfer an idea from one location to another. So you're making exactly the same shot, but with a different kind of nature. I think that's interesting for me, if you understand what I mean. Uh, Yeah, you kind of apply the same idea to a different subject matter or environment, same approach. Mm. Who are some contemporary photographers that inspire you, would you say? Yeah, uh, like you, uh, I think you're fantastic. And uh, uh, many... uh, there are many. It's hard to say. I mean, there are fifty, hundred photographers that I, I, I that inspires me. Um, yeah, today it's just uh, amazing how many good photographers there are. It's an enormous uh, competition if you see it that way, or or a source of inspiration, whatever. Um, well, 
What would you say are some of the overarching qualities of the work that you most enjoy? Yeah, I I, uh, I like when the scenes are are not so monumental. I think that there there is a a school now that I think uh, is is trying to make images extremely monumental and uh, with, with kind of uh, sunset sunrise situation and HDR and. Uh, uh, incredible depth of field and all that stuff, and and Orton effects and so on. I think that, I think that it's too much for me. I don't. I'm not. I don't like that really. I, I think it's just too much shooting over the target. It's like Walt Disney for me. I, I rather enjoy something that is more down to earth, uh, not so monumental. Um, right. It's, it's like a comic book with pow bang shabam yeah yeah i know it, i rather <laughs> rather read a poem <laughs> uh, yeah. i think what, what we what i used to describe as visual poetry i think it's more interesting than than just uh tallest mountain and deepest valleys and uh, hallelujah light i think i'm not so intrigued by that anymore but i think it's yeah. also uh, a process of getting older when I was young, I was exactly looking for that. I was looking for for drama, for greatness of nature, and uh, it has not the same value for me today. Well, a lot of the time, that kind of very obvious epic light can make up for flaws in composition and things like that. Yeah. So it kind of creates a distraction that maybe yeah, it be, it viewers becomes, becomes you know it makes a viewer enjoy the image more, even though it has some. Uh, weird compositional issues or something like that. Mm. So I think a lot of people kind of use it as a crutch, to be honest. Yeah. When when um, when it becomes like a hunt for the perfect situation, it's it's not what I I, I don't really uh, hunt for that. I don't I don't think it is so important to have the most optimum situation. I try to avoid that. Uh, and of course, if you're lucky to get it, fine. But I'm not really. Uh, it's not. Uh, my target to have the absolutely most perfect condition it's that's why i shoot in in uh, overcast because it's never really perfect it's just okay yeah i think it also depends greatly on you know what your goals are for your photography mm -hmm. you know if you're if your goals are just to you know you experience some amazing conditions and you wanted to capture that moment and share it with the world like that's a you know those kind of scenes are going to motivate you but if you're, you know, you've, if you've seen a lot of stuff and it's be harder and harder to become impressed with other images, I think, and you want to differentiate yourself and kind of, I don't know, pers personally express yourself through your work. I think, I think that's where looking for interesting compositions or s more subtle situations, I think is where it's going to become more satisfaction. Yeah. And I think, of course, if you're working with mountains, uh, I don't think you, you probably have to have uh, a kind of proportion of uh, hallelujah light. Otherwise it become boring. If you're shooting more mountains in overcast all the time, it, I don't think it would be so interesting. So depends on the subject matter. But if you're talking uh, intimate landscapes, uh, then uh, I, I think uh, it, it is more uh, better to have this overcast than trying to have s some beautiful light in, in them. You know, I don't know. So I've, I've been doing uh, photography full-time for seven or eight years now. And when I started 
the world was, you know, it was a very different place than it was when you started uh, several decades before. How do you feel? So like, I'm sure it's changed a lot for you making a living as a photographer throughout all this time. Whereas for me, it's, I've been pretty much doing the same thing since the beginning because it hasn't been so long. Do you feel like there are certain things that have been lost um, from before that, that you miss like about being a professional photographer that maybe aren't relevant anymore today that you kind of wish were or yeah. have there been positive changes for you? It, it, it is a lot more difficult today than it was when I started. You know, it was in when I started professionally in 1990, there was a big demand for for uh, images in the in the archives in the world in the photo agencies. So I, I joined Getty and Corbis and a few other agencies and and I got I got the income enough uh, to make my living from that. Just uh, how to say uh, I went somewhere and uh, two weeks later ca- coming back home I, I delivered uh, my my uh, transparencies to the agencies and they started to sell my work and I made my living from that for 20, more than twenty years, good living and. From 2008, I would say, November 2008, there was a, a, a crash on the stock market, uh, I think, in Wall Street. And the whole economy went down. And at the same time, the photo business went down, and it never recovered. And uh, from then on, uh, the, the sales from agencies, they dropped 95% just overnight, and they never recovered. So I had to... Uh, adjust my sights you know i had had to find a new way of making uh income and uh that, that's been difficult now now it's it's more teaching it's more uh workshops and, and talks and uh exhibitions and so on whereas before i i could just travel where i wanted all in the world me and my wife we we traveled all over the globe shooting and i delivered stuff to the agencies and i made my living that way today that's impossible so it's it's hard to advise a, a, a kid who want to be a photographer, nature photographer. What what shall I tell them? Yeah, believe in yourself, start shooting. But holy Christ, it's difficult to make make some money from it. You know, uh, you can't just start. You can't start teaching from day one. You know, you have to it takes a while to to become a teacher also, and uh, you cannot earn money from agencies. So what what is left? I don't know. It's, at, at what point do you feel a photographer should begin teaching? Where would you draw that line where it's too early or it's the right time to start? Because I feel like a lot of people start really early now. They'll take a workshop and then the next year they're taking a group. Yeah, the I place agree with you. Workshop yeah. in. And I wonder, I uh, ask myself, what, what can they teach? You know, F-stop and shot to speed? <laughs> what is it? <laughs> Focal lengths? Uh, it's, it's, uh, I don't know. I, I think you should have at least develop the style of your own and uh, have some ideas how to make photos not just uh, understanding how the camera works you know you you have to be have developed a, a style i think then you can start teaching people uh, i think there's also a an industry wide holistic risk in people entering the space too soon because they're going basically they're i my opinion would be that they are, could make it to where people that aren't photographers yet are going to get a bad taste in their mouth about what that experience can really be like. Mm-hmm. And they might not want to do a workshop with with anybody else after having that negative experience. Or maybe it was an okay experience, but it was like, well, I probably could have figured that out on my own on like a couple of YouTube 
videos. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think, I think people are doing it because it's one of the only consistent ways you can make income in this space yeah. currently. Well, I think it's more just the most obvious way to make money. You know, you charge a certain amount per person for a workshop, it sells out, you make that amount of money. Mm -hmm. Whereas like selling prints, uh, selling tutorial videos, even you don't know how many sales you're going to get. Like it's not as measurable. I think it's a lot more obvious just to teach and kind of do what everybody's doing. Cause I honestly don't do that much teaching and I've been able to do this full time without having to pick up another job or anything like that. For the last seven years, I have three kids, you know, I have a family to support. I'm the only person working right now because we have a newborn and I hardly do any kinds of workshops except for some one-on-one -on -one mentoring with some photographers and an occasional one-on-one -on -one processing session. And then these critique groups that I've been doing almost every Saturday, which are really fun. And Hans and I did one together um, a couple months ago now. And uh, yeah, that, that's a minimal part of my income, but I couldn't give somebody that's aspiring to be a full-time photographer a roadmap either like i honestly have no idea how it works out for me it just does and i'm constantly thinking of new things to do uh but a, a lot of the things i do like making my first book and now i'm working on my next book it's not because i want to make money from it that's just like a byproduct because i obviously can't afford to make a book and give it away for free but my intention with it is that i want to make a book and i do it because i need to or, you know, these tutorial videos, I, I get a lot of joy out of teaching people. And same thing with the critique groups. I do them because I enjoy them. And I've met a lot of new photographers through them. I've found work that inspires me from a lot of the participants because we get a big range of different photographers from beginners to people that sometimes I feel like their stuff is better than mine. I don't even know what they're doing in there. So like, you know, I, I really benefit it, benefit from it in a lot of ways other than just other than just financially. But yeah, it'd be really hard to give guidance to somebody that wants to be a full-time photographer and how they could do that. Cause it's really just, yeah. it's constantly changing. Yeah, it is. And, and, uh, but I think, uh, there, there are a lot of creative, uh, young kids today that, uh, discover new ways of making money where I'm, 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 I'm kind of too old and tired to, to start some kind of, uh, I'm kind of, um, reluctant to, 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 uh, dive into uh, like like making uh like i said tutorials or or uh, uh youtube channels and so on I, I don't have the energy to do that and I, I think i'm too old for that so i'm uh i was kind of spoiled i think these years when i worked uh shooting for for agencies uh, i was spoiled having a you know i i don't didn't have to worry about uh sales at all it just money just came in and all of a sudden i didn't have any income from that it was a shock to me and we when we were talking about the future none of us had pension we we didn't pay money to pension uh funds for the future because we had the damn archive yeah archive it will be our pension right okay it was worth nothing the archive is worth nothing in the end i mean very little and in the old days, it was worth a lot because you, you were selling images from your archive. And and uh, today, uh, when, when you're talking application, I was selling images for for uh, companies who want to have a cover of a of a annual report or whatever. Those clients don't exist today because they find images for free. Uh, and I was selling a lot of images to calendar companies. I, I 
basically made my living from selling calendar images. Today, they they can fill a calendar for twelve dollars, a dollar per, per image. It's crazy, and, and um, uh, so it's it's um, kind of kind of difficult to when, when you're old like I am, I'm sixty seven almost, to to um, start a completely new way of of uh, living, you know, or, or how to say a new is it completely different business where when today in comparison with the business 30 years ago completely different every everyone was shooting for agencies these days nobody was teaching workshops today it's the other way around everybody's teaching virtual workshops nobody's shooting for agencies so um, yeah well i feel like nowadays the secret if there is one is to just be doing lots of different things, because if you just focus a hundred percent on workshops, what's your audience going to be? Your audience is going to grow, but it's only going to be new photographers that want to learn photography and they're not going to be buying your prints or your images or things like that. So then if you only focus on workshops, you're not really going to be shooting new work. And then also eventually maybe you've kind of taught everyone within your pool and then you're not really getting signups anymore, but then you're not getting business elsewhere either because you haven't built an audience that is interested in just your artwork and not learning from you. Yeah. So like you want to broaden your pool as much as possible by doing many different things, you know, like Mm. the ideal is to have some print sales coming in, uh, do a few workshops maybe, and then have some image licensing deals. Cause those are all like different audiences that Mm. want those different products. They're not, you know, maybe make a book like most of the people that buy your book will just be fans of your work and not really people that want to learn. So it's just, I think, uh, not, not getting too focused on one thing because eventually it'll stop and yeah. you're going to kind of get left if behind. Should workshop doing workshops. You don't develop because you cannot, I mean, you don't get any new, uh, material. You just take pe- people to places where you've been before and you, you've shot them before and, and you're and focused on them making you, images and uh, not your own. Yeah, you get nothing. So uh, that's the downside of it. And uh, you have to do your own stuff uh, to develop, to to produce some new material. That's very important. So uh, it's a kind of combination for me. I, I do maybe five workshops per year, and that's okay. And uh, the rest, I'm doing my own things, my own project. Uh, there really two bad years during uh, because of the pandemic. Now I haven't had any income to 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 do my own projects. You know because that's you you need to have it costs it costs a lot of money to travel, and um, so that's why I'm doing these workshops just to get some money to do my own projects. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like nowadays you don't even have to be a good photographer to be a successful photographer financially what you need is kind of an over-the-top personality or like really good at marketing or Mm. you're a good writer um you know the photography for in a lot of situations i feel like is kind of secondary unfortunately Mm. which is sad in some ways yeah i think i would disagree because i don't consider myself to be any of those things and yet here i am financially stable because of photography somehow so I think maybe I'm just like a, I don't know. I, I feel like luck ha- plays a huge part in it, you know, because I see lots of other photographers with work that I consider to be better than my own and they're not able to do it full time for whatever reason. And so, yeah, but I don't I think, think you're giving, it, I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit, Eric. I mean, you're a good writer. You're well connected in the industry, which means you have social skills, um, which a lot of 
nature photographers don't have. I mean, let's just be honest. Like a lot of people are super introverted, hate people. Mm, yeah. Um, you're, you're describing pretty, me right now. <laughs> no, no, come on, man. I mean, I think you're selling yourself a little bit short. I mean, not a lot of people can put together a high quality book like you have. Um, you're, you're a good teacher. I, you know, I think, you know, I think you have a lot, you have a lot of breadth, Let's just say that, like, like you're saying, you have a lot of, you know, sticks in the fire, which I think to your point is really what is necessary today. But it's all that is just because I love doing those things. That's what it comes down to. Otherwise I'd have a different job. And so really like if you love photography or I guess if you love nature to the point where you feel like you need to photograph it and dedicate your life to doing that, then like that's that's when I would say, yeah, you should try to do it full time because it is worth uh, these little things and maybe a less secure income and, um, you know, not having that paycheck you can count on all the time because you do get to dedicate your life to something that's meaningful to you. And so like all those, I don't see any of those things as like business ideas or like, you know, nothing that I plan out for like financial success. It's just, I, I do them because I have to, because that's what I want to spend my time doing and I love it. So, I mean, unless you have that, I think it's going to be really hard to do photography full-time. It's not going to be worth the downsides. Mm. It also, I think it it's a big difference where you live also. Uh, of course, you, you can change your own situa- situation by moving to a place where it's easier to actually produce images and, and to sell images. I think here up in Sweden, it's uh, kind of outback really uh it's it's a small audience here a small uh, uh the, the the potential clients you have here are, are much less than you have in america for instance you it's harder to make a business here i think but of, on the other hand there is a lot of competition but the competition is it, it, today is not kind of uh if you live in america you have 300 million americans uh, but today, I mean, the competition today is the whole world because of internet, and uh, so the competition is is there. But here in Sweden, and you speak a, a crazy language, nobody understands. Uh, it, it's a disadvantage, really. I think uh, it's easier if you are English spe- speaking English and you, you live in in America. I'm not saying that it's easy for you, but. I think it's easier. I know. I agree though. Like that's a big part of the luck that I'm, that I'm alluding to, you know, like I didn't choose to be born here, No, but I definitely see it as an advantage. Yeah. And you live in, in the middle of, of uh, hallelujah, really. It's, it's fantastic. Well, I I live here in Utah now. I'm from California, but I moved here because I love being here. And so I live in a landscape deliberately because it constantly inspires me. Mm. But even in California, you have fantastic landscape. So, Absolutely, I, I think it's it's a it's in a very interesting part of the world, and as I see with Icelanders, I think they have become very successful with their photography. Many Icelanders who are doing fantastic with their photography because they have such an incredible landscape outside the door. So, I what think- is it that keeps you in Sweden? Then why don't you move out here to Iceland or somewhere else that is more photographically inspiring? Yeah, but I'm too old. <laughs> Maybe uh, 30 years ago I would have done it, but not now. I think it's, uh, I'm happy living here and photography is not everything in my life. So um, I'm happy living here, but it's 
sometimes it's frustrating. And especially living here in Stockholm, I have actually nothing uh, around the corner here. If I'm lucky, I can have missed um, a couple of days in November every year. I can shoot here just outside where I live. But um, um, it's difficult. I have to go. I really have to travel a lot if I want to take some pictures. But but you live. You don't have. You you have to travel within Utah also quite far distances, right? It's- well, I have mountains close by, so in the fall I can drive 10 15 minutes and be in a canyon with lots of aspen trees and maples and things so a lot of work is photographed pretty close to my home but then for the southwest like desert stuff southern utah that's Mm. two and a half to five hours usually for most places Mm. fairly close Mm. just uh maybe too hot to live down there full time i usually avoid it in the summer what about you matt you have uh quite a lot of interesting stuff around the corner well right Durango. Yeah, I mean, I I purposely, like Eric, I chose where I want to live, even though it's really expensive. But and that's why I have a full time job on top of photography, so that I can live here. But you know, I'm 45 minutes away from, in my opinion, top one of the top three mountain ranges in the lower 48, mm. and it's vast and diverse, yeah. and it's photographable pretty much year round. I'm also two and a half hours away from the Southwest desert. Um, I'm, you know, I'm five hours from the Grand Canyon. I'm seven hours from Zion. I'm two hours from Moab. I'm an hour away from Vistai Badlands in New Mexico. So like, there's a lot really close to me that I can choose from year round. So Hans, your portfolio from what I was looking at last night is mostly dominated by like forest, ice, sand, aerial scenes. What's your favorite subject matter to photograph, if you have one? I, actually, it's two. It's water and, and, and trees. I think uh, for, forest and water. I think that, Water as in like flowing water or yeah. like ice, snow, all different forms? Because yeah, your water portfolio the, is like... Yeah, yeah, I'm actually working on a book now on water that will be published in, in the fall. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, I noticed once when I had an exhibition a few years ago, and I was, uh, we called it uh, something, uh, the, the title was something with time. I don't remember exactly what, what it was called. But when I uh, looked at the exhibition with 50 prints, and I noticed that it was water in every one of them without... Uh, uh, without intentional. Unintentional. And, and I realized that water is a very important uh, ingredient in a landscape photo quite often and water can reflect its environment and it can uh, implement some kind of uh, impressionistic uh, you know blur it can be quite cool uh, so I, I really like water I think it's uh, the most interesting subject for me to, together with trees then trees are fantastic because uh, there is a kind of a, how do I say, a philosophical uh, background also I mean a tree is spending its whole life standing at at the same place right and i admire trees for that <laughs> i think they're stable and um that's why we have tree huggers you know people are hugging trees because they get comfort from a tree and, and i think walking in, in a forest is just amazing listening to sounds and uh feeling the smell of, of pine trees just fantastic and uh, moss and yeah 
forests are just wonderful. Of course, I, I, I've been in the desert many times, and I like deserts as well, but it's nothing I can do very often. But I, I, I like the, the, I'd say, the, the tranquility of the desert, where you can, the only thing you can hear when you walk on the sand dunes in Death Valley is your own breathing. You know, it's, it's, there is no sound because the, the sand absorbs all the sound. Even if you shout, it, the the shout dies out because of the the uh, it's absorbed by the sand. So the silence is just amazing in the desert. Unless a F eighteen flies over. What? Unless a F eighteen flies over here, there's like a yeah. <laughs> yeah, or if there's like forty mile an hour wind nonstop, like when you and I were uh, in southern Utah, Matt, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, you're just cussing nonstop. Is there any place or subject matter that you haven't photographed yet that you would still like to? It it probably is. Uh, I would like to, as I said earlier here, uh, I would like to expand this man-made landscape uh, project to to traveling to uh, remote places, but it's not doable in an easy way. You know, it's uh, you know, it's financially it's very expensive to fly first. Let's see uh, if I want to go to Australia and do some aerials. First flying to Australia and then hire a plane or a helicopter, it costs a fortune. So I don't think it will happen for me. But, um, of course, I would like to do more more of this. But uh, I'm, I'm quite happy with it, what I've done and what, what I'm doing. Uh, it's not that I, I want to travel that much. Uh, any, I, I think I'm quite happy with the traveling I've done. Uh, most of the time, but um, and I'm happy to be here in in Europe. I, I think it's okay, even though there are more exciting places in the world. But um, I, I try to dig where I stand. Have so, you ever considered using a platform like Kickstarter to like get people to you know support a project of yours? For example, that's where I'm falling short in, in in things like that. I think I'm too old, you know. <laughs> well, you should just get Eric to do it for you then. Yeah. He could set it up for you. <laughs> I wouldn't go so well if I did it. <laughs> I want to. I want to hear you ask that hot dog question, Eric. Yeah. So uh, the other day, I got a DM from Hans just out of the blue, and it was just a video of him sitting in the backseat of a car, yeah, eating a hot dog and chasing it with a bottle of champagne. What was? Well, don't and then He didn't say anything else. Oh, he said, "Manners maketh man," yeah. and then that was it. And I was like, "Where are you? What's?" Yeah, it was quite what are you doing. Uh, it was quite funny because uh, uh, I came home from Spain and uh, I wasn't able to have any breakfast at the at the hotel, and uh, I went directly to the airport, and there was no nothing uh, served on the plane either. So I was hungry like hell, and uh, so I told my wife to uh, to uh, uh, buy a hamburger, and at the same time, my daughter had brought home a, a bottle. She went to a party the day before and there was heaps of champagne there, uh, expensive champagne like Dom Perignon. So she took a bottle uh, home because there was a lot of uh, champagne left on the party. Nobody was, uh, it was a lot left. Uh, and, and so she brought that bottle home and, and um, they gave me a hot dog or hamburger or whatever it was. And I, 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 I was making up this kind of a stupid image with, with me just gorging on that hot dog and drinking Dom Perignon like it was or like it was Coca Cola. 
like it was a, a normal thing for me to do. And I, I posted. Yeah, that's why I was confused. Yeah, it was kind of funny to do it. So I sent it to a lot of friends, including you, uh, and uh, said, manners make it man. It's like, an, it, I think it's a British uh, expression. <laughs> Bel- I'm glad making, I was on that list. Making people believe that you're a rock star, but you're not. <laughs> I love that. What's uh I'm always curious uh, with people that I look up to and admire. Like, what what's a normal day in the life for for Hans Strand? Yeah, I, I like to sleep a lot, so uh, I, I I wake up around ten ten thirty in the morning. I kind of decadent, and and uh, Do you go, go to bed late. I go to bed at uh, two o'clock at night. Okay, so and um, that's not much sleep. I go to bed at like eleven and wake up at like eight, maybe nine. Uh huh. Yeah, I sleep. Try to get like, like nine hours. hours normally eight hours so uh, i like to sleep in the mornings I, I'm, and my wife is even more a night person she she go to goes to bed at three or four o'clock yeah <laughs> uh, so but um yeah normal day i i, I work on images um now I have a ton to take care of after being in spain so i i think i will spend the whole summer um doing the processing of these how many images do you feel like you process in a day could be uh like how many can you handle uh, maybe 20 i wow, don't that's I, in a single day yeah i i don't i don't do much you know i i actually i basically set the black and white uh, black and white point uh maybe correct the color temperature a little bit uh do a little bit dodge and burn uh i don't do much with my images i try to make them as i saw them more or less sometimes yeah, i for me it's I darken certain spots, make it a little darker, sometimes brighten up. And But I, I don't practice any advanced uh, post-processing or Photoshop gymnastics, as I used to call it. I, I'm not that kind of person. So that's why I can do 20 images. So For I, me, it's not that it's like too time-consuming. It's just like after a couple hours, I kind of become numb and I'm like looking through my bridge catalog and i'm like i don't like any of these pictures you know i just don't feel inspired anymore to to process them and then i got to sleep and then come back the next day refreshed and i'm like oh actually that's pretty good or that's cool i just kind of become oversaturated very quickly looking through all these files and choosing Mm. stuff to edit that happens to me also and and uh, it's it's kind of a blood sweat and tears you know to to process a lot of images and and i get bored actually as you said i'm I'm excited when I look through the images directly after I've shot them. And uh, sometimes I'm kind of pumping myself up. You know, when I travel, and uh, like now when I was in Spain and I, I opened the pictures in uh, the files in the computer uh, in the hotel in the evening, I get overexcited. I get so extremely excited and wound up so I can't fall asleep. You know, I, 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 I cannot do that, you know, too long in the evening. If I, I must stop at least three hours before I go to bed. Otherwise, I can't sleep. It's terrible. Yeah, because your mind will just continue yeah, to I get, race. I get so speeded up in my head, and um, so I, I. And actually, every time when I go to bed, I, I'm thinking photographs, and uh, um, I, I think it's interesting for me. And it's it's a way of it's like a mantra. Uh, I'm thinking of what I want to do, and I'm thinking what I can do with my, I'm thinking about everything that is related to photography. And, and um, sometimes I, I, I have a problem. I, I get too speeded up, you know, I, 
uh, I have problems calming down. Yeah, you got to stimulate your body more because your your well, mind's overstimulated and your body's understimulated when you're at the computer for too long. Yeah, I think you're right there. And now I have a problem with my Achilles tendon, so I I cannot really exercise either. And uh, they've told me I have to be because I I started to exercise here in April, and uh, I I just really usually go long walks, like I walk for an hour and and uh, kind of high speed or high tempo. And uh, I obviously, uh, um, how to say, injured my Achilles tendon. And it's kind of serious, difficult thing to get rid of, as, a, as far as I understand. I don't know how, how to get rid of I've had a problem now for two months, and, and I, I can't really uh, exercise. And that's a shame, because it, it's a way of cleaning the system when, when you exercise. And I probably have to buy a bike. I don't know if I probably stress my Achilles there as well. I don't know. Maybe swimming? Swimming, maybe. Uh, I, I think swimming is incredibly boring. Just, That's like a big Scandinavian thing, no? Like going out and swimming in the lakes and stuff and yeah. doing cold cold plunges. Yeah. I, I have a summer house uh, further north, and it, it was spending the summer there, so I'll probably uh, dive into the lake there. See, so you are a rock star. You got summer houses, you got champagne and hot dogs. Yeah, but summer house, it's a kind of advan- advanced tent, more or less. It's really all no electricity. We have solar energy, of course, and we have a outhouse, and uh, it's very primitive. But I like it that way. It's it's not fancy at all. Super uh, uh, super traditional Swedish uh, summer house. So it's, and then people that are listening to this can't see the mansion that's in the background of your camera right now that uh, you're sitting in. Yeah, the mansion. Yeah, the the domains. <laughs> right, he's sitting on his throne there in Stockholm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he's got a tiger next to him. Yeah, tiger. Right, right. Like there's a white snake tiger, just yeah. crawling around his neck, like part of his jewelry. Mm. How'd you enjoy doing the critique group with me? Oh, great, great. Uh, and it's interesting to hear uh, your your approach. Uh, and uh, it, it's uh, sometimes it's it's similar to my idea, and sometimes it's. Uh, Different, very different. So it's interesting to hear how you are thinking. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've done sessions with like ten different photographers now, like yeah. Adam Gibbs, David Thompson, Alex Noriega, Sarah Marino, Richard Martin, and uh, the one I did with you was actually the one where we disagreed the most, which yeah. I actually thought was really fun because you and I like kind of argued on every single image, like yeah. about crops or changing different things or saturation. Like yeah. we had a lot of cool discussion i thought yeah cool huh? yeah i think so it, it i think it's healthy to disagree i think it's healthy hey eric why don't you talk a little bit more about those critique sessions and you know what they are how you set them up and i'd be curious to hear han's side of what it was like participating yeah so it's an idea i came up with uh at the end of last year then i started the first one was late january this year i think with david thompson and I kind of I bounced the idea off of him beforehand to see if he thought it was something that would work because I've I've been doing one on one portfolio reviews for a few years now and those are awesome and especially if you have like a project you know if you want me to look at like ten or fifteen images that's definitely the way to go but I came up with the group setting because it's really important to receive feedback on your own images because. When you get your images in front of another set of eyes, especially somebody like Hans Strand, who has decades of experience that you don't have yet, they can pick things out and notice things that you're that are invisible to you. 
And then that helps you to notice more things going forward, making new images. And then, yeah, you can improve those ones as well. So that's something that I've always valued. But I thought in a group setting, not only would you receive feedback that's directed at your images and things you can do on on those images specifically, but when you watch me and these other photographers critique the images from the other participants, you don't take it as personally and you can actually take it more directly. And a lot of the time you can accept it a lot better because you're not emotionally tied to the photograph. So I feel like people really learn a lot from when they're listening to us critique the other images as well. And also like it might be places or subject matter that you've never photographed before or styles. You know, sometimes there's like some macro photography, there's grand landscapes, intimate stuff, abstract abstract stuff, all in the same group. And so you're getting feedback on all these different kinds of images, which is going to help you uh, in lots of different ways instead of just directly in, in, you know, your little world of what you're doing you get a lot more varied feedback and it's a lot more broad. So they've been, they've been really great. Every single person has loved them. A lot of people sign up for multiple ones. They keep coming back because if I was just doing them by myself, probably after two or three, you'd get enough out of it, right? It's not really, it's going to be kind of redundant after that. But usually I do them with other photographers. I do a few by myself every now and then because you could sign up for every single one and it's going to be different because even if you submit the same images, Hans Strahn is going to have something different to say than William Neal or David Thompson or Alex Noriega will say something different than Sarah Marino. And so you can get a lot more feedback that way. And there's a lot more variety and it's a reason to keep coming back. And it's a way for people to continue learning. And I've seen, you know, like not only will photographers send me the new versions of the images that they submit afterwards, so I can see the changes that they implemented from our suggestions And those turn out great, which is really satisfying and they're really happy with them. But then I'll see their work going forward and you can see there's like a, there's a tangible increase in quality just from that, because it's not just like watching a video where you might be able to pick some things out that relate to you. When Hans Strand is critiquing your image, it's direct feedback that is all relatable. It's all relevant because it has to do with the image that you shot. So People have, yeah, they've really been growing from them. And that was my hope that people would be able to learn as much as possible. And it'd be an effective way to teach that no one else is really doing right now. And what do you, what is, how is it from your perspective, Hans, what was it like participating? Yeah, I, I think it's a, a great way of, uh, um, it, 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 I think it's more, uh, people can relate to, to what you're saying if, if you apply something on ideas on, on, on their own images, uh, in comparison to uh, me or Eric showing our work and we talk about uh, how we did this and that, uh, uh, it's, it becomes more, uh, how to say, uh, first it's more interesting because it's their own work and uh, they have more interest, of course, in, in what they have done than interest in our work. So I think it's it's a really good, uh, I, good way of making people uh, aware of... Uh, uh, compositions and post-processing etc which is directly applied on, on their work their own work and i think that's the strength uh, it's a big difference than if we just go through our work and say this uh, i underexpose this and i uh, did this and that and that and right, I, no. I don't think they can grasp that uh, the same way as uh, if we apply that on on their own work, I think that's the strength. And, and it's Would, the the coin has two sides, and 
having our both uh, different. If we disagree on something, it, it's also uh, making uh, the photographers uh, aware that you can you, you can uh, see uh, uh, this uh, images from two different sides uh, and uh, each one. Yeah, because I remember there was one image where I was like, "You should go high key with it." You know, low contrast, go a lot brighter. And Hans was like, no way, you should go darker with this, more contrast. And so there's no right or wrong. And I think that's comforting because when you get feedback from one person, you can kind of take it as like, oh, I did this wrong. This is the right way to do it. And there's only one way. But when you hear two photographers that you respect or admire say two different things, I think that's comforting because it allows you some space Mm. to go in different directions and be a little bit more confident with the direction you want to go in because you realize there is no one right way to take it. Yeah, sure. I, I think it's, uh, I, I've noticed that uh, uh, I've had some uh, image reviews uh, myself uh, and I think people, uh, they, they get a really good uh, feeling, you know, getting a, crit- a constructive critique on their work. If they don't, uh, they, there are people, of course, who, who who uh, try to defend their mistakes, uh, which is kind of stupid, uh, if they may have made an obvious mistake, and that people get insulted when you get criticizing them. But uh, hopefully, uh, th- those are in minority. But uh, I-, I think it's. I-, I would love to have constructive critique on my work, and uh, I think you grow with that. Uh, if people could uh, have some ideas, I-, I I don't understand why you did this and that. Why why didn't you do this? It would have been more interesting. Yeah, sure, I would listen to that. It would be interesting. E- even now, Hans, you would be open to somebody giving you critique on your new images after. 40 yeah. years plus of image making. I can take in what I think is a good critique, and sometimes I, I could I could probably disagree uh, most of the time, but uh, there would be some some good advice, as I'm sure I would I would listen to that. But again, oh, that's awesome to hear that you're still have, that I mean, humble. One of us, we have our own ideas how to make images, and and uh, I don't want to be uh, I don't want to be Eric. I don't I want to still be Hans. You know. I, I want to be myself, but I can always improve. I can always improve, but I still... You want to be yourself with Eric's hair. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. I'll try to grow it. I had a terrible haircut three weeks ago. I I almost sued the damn uh, hair, uh, the, the guy. Terrible. Uh, it will take a couple of weeks to, to recover, but it's... Holy shit. The worst haircut. Yeah, I was going to say it looks pretty bad, Hans. Yeah, it looks, I don't know what happened. looks terrible. Uh, I envy your hair. And, uh, Matt's I like the yeah. Look at Matt. Yeah, are you using any gel or something? Cue ball, Matt. <laughs> no, I just shave it. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's funny. Well, I had a. Uh, I only had one more question for both of you guys. Um, so you know, last year you both entered the Natural Landscape Photography Awards, and of course, Eric was the Photographer of the Year, and Hans, your work was really well received by the judges as well. And I'm curious to hear why you both supported the competition by entering and what words would you have for others thinking of entering this year? I think it's a, a, a good um, a good step uh, towards, uh, I would say, true images because there is so much uh, out there, which is, as we discussed earlier, which is uh, kind of constructed images that are put together like composites and uh, and too much mumbo jumbo behind it, and whereas this uh, photography competition uh, 
is for for uh, I would say real real uh, I would say trust trustworthy images. What do you call them? Uh, what's called natural landscape natural. authentic yeah authentic images and i think that's a good step because i've seen too much of the other stuff and uh, and again if you win something you should be happy for that i think it's it's good for you but if you don't win you shouldn't be too uh, too sad because it, it again it reflects the the opinion of the jury and as we have as we said earlier we we can disagree on what is good and what is bad so uh, if somebody likes your work, fine. But if they don't like it, it's fine as well. So don't take it too seriously if you don't succeed. What about for you, Eric? I just saw it as something that I wanted to support. It was never about trying to win or anything like that. I just wanted to enter some images to show my support for the competition because I liked how it was a lot more focused because I feel like a lot of competitions, they're so broad with the kinds of images that can be entered that there's really no point in your images being evaluated because they're being compared against things that aren't relevant to what you're trying to do anyways. So it's like, I liked how this was a lot more themed and more focused and I felt like my images would get some attention. Um, but mainly it was just to support it. Like when you, when you called me like a week or two before the announcements were made, I really did not think that you were calling me to tell me that I'd won anything. I thought maybe you guys were like trying to decide on a winner and you just wanted like an outside opinion. Like you wanted to show me some stuff to see what I thought, like if it was okay or not, like maybe some gray area and the rules or something. I was completely surprised that I had won anything at all from it. So that, that really wasn't my, my intention with it. It's more just something that I think is respectable I'm not even big on competitions. I hardly ever enter any for the reason I stated before, but um, this was one that I felt I could get behind. And it's if any competitions are going to stick around, this is the one that I would want to stick around. So I wanted to support it however I could. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, to your point, Hans, I think that was like a big reason why we started the competition is that the four of us that started it were just growing frustrated with what was out there in, in the competition land in terms of, mm. you know, we're, what kind of imagery are we actually saying is good photography versus, you know, is it someone's got really amazing post-processing skills, but does mm. that mean they're a good photographer, right? So, and I'm not saying there's an answer to that question, but I think there are two different things. Yeah, totally. Well, and honestly, to be fair, I don't even practice or follow all of those rules in all of my images. Neither it was kind I. of hard to <laughs> it was hard to find images that wouldn't be disqualified. And I think I had one or two that were disqualified even and they were Yeah, you did. Yeah, they were a bit uh what's the word? <clears throat> I guess, you know, I didn't take as much liberties with the post processing. They're a bit more right. straight but out I, of camera. But I also see that as um that con- those constraints that are in our rules, I think those are you know, not it doesn't have to be in all of it. Well, it levels work. out the playing field. It was uh, it's great to have you guys here, and I hopefully you enjoyed this format of of you know having another person on the show to ask questions. So I, I liked it. And uh, so thank I'm you. I'm honored that you wanted to have a chat with me, uh, Eric. Always good talking to you. Seeing your hair. Yeah, you absolutely. Look, you look like a medieval awesome. prince. Where is your white horse? It's I'm actually the, scared of horses. It's in the back. Yeah, I'm not a fan of big animals.
Well, thanks to Hans and Eric for a fun conversation about Hans' work and career. I hope that there were some useful takeaways from this week's show. And as always, I'm honored to be able to have this, these conversations with legends in our field. I would be remiss not to suggest listeners take a moment to check out Eric's critique groups or his latest video, as well as buying his book and Hans' book, links to which you can find in the show notes. That is how this community can thrive, through mutual support of everyone's hard work. Speaking of which, as mentioned, we are still accepting entries for the Natural Landscape Photography Awards. This is a passion project for Tim Parkin, Alex Nail, Rajesh Jodis Warren, and myself. Our goal is to discover and showcase the best landscape and nature photography on the planet. Other than having a shot at winning over $30,000 in prizes, you can also set the goal of having your work appear in our fine art book, which you will receive for free if you do. We also provide discounts on the book to entrants and provide access to many other perks that other competitions simply do not. I think it's the best competition that exists, and it exists for you. You have until August 31st to enter. Just go to naturallandscapeawards.com. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week. Mm-hmm.